We are starting a brand new series, and we are in the year of becoming. Yeah, did you remember that? The year 2021, we're still in 2021. I don't know if you knew that, but man, it's kind of a longer year. It is the year of becoming, becoming everything that God designed us to be. No matter where we're at in our walk with God, whether or not we yet even have begun a relationship with God, he has a plan for your life, and we would love to align so that we can maximize everything he built us to do. So we were grabbing some different Bible books and saying, what could we study in order to kind of inspire us to live in a fresh new way. So we grab the book of Esther. We're gonna be going through the book of Esther. It's gonna be a five-part series. I'm gonna be able to teach all five of those parts with you. So if I have to be here, you have to be here, right? So wherever you're at, make sure you're, you're here, right? So we entitled the series, The Queen's Gambit. Now, some of you have actually watched the miniseries movie. I'm not here to promote that, all right? Just letting you know. The reason why we picked that name is because the Queen's Gambit is a chess move. Not checkers, right? That's what most of us play. Chess. In chess, it's a risky move that you sacrifice one piece or you give up one thing for a greater blessing or a greater reward, right? So anytime there is a risk now for something greater later, you're talking about the Queen's Gambit concept. Now, the fact that it has queen in it is kind of cool, right? Because Esther obviously is a queen. But here's why it ties in so well. God took a risk of grabbing a relative unknown woman and having her be the deliverer of his people. She takes a shocking risk to be able to go before a king when it could cost her her life in order to sacrifice that her people might live. She goes head to head with a super bad guy in the story, and that is a risk, but there is a big payoff. All you're going to see in this story is risk after risk after risk so that something greater may happen. How does that apply to us? I'm gonna ask you to take a risk now, for God, a God that is invisible, a God that you cannot hear audibly, I'm going to ask you to invest in your spiritual life now for a greater return, and that is the glory of God. You understand? So everything about this title fuses into this story, and we have a tagline that goes with it. If you walk into our courtyard, you're going to see two posters on the wall. One will say the queen's gambit. The other will say seize the moment. And here's why. God is constantly tapping us on the shoulder and whispering in our ear. And most of us, we just keep on going through it and ignore it. How many times have you had someone laid on your heart and you knew you should text them? You knew you should call them, but you didn't. You thought, you know what, I'm probably just making that up in my head. But what if God was talking to you? What if he was orchestrating a divine appointment? You would see this partnership with God happening on a daily basis, and your relationship would be so much more rich. I'm going to ask you that when God lays things on your heart, you seize the moment. You don't let it drift. Man, you could be fired up in church, but by Monday you can't even remember the name of the church. You understand what I'm talking about? Like there are so many distractions between now and then. When God lays it on your heart, I want you to seize that moment because that might be a holy moment for you. Everybody with me? All right, fantastic. Now, the significance of this book in one particular way cannot be missed. God chose a woman to be the deliverer of his people. Now, this is 2,500 years ago. We are in the ancient world. This woman, you will find out, is not appreciated or respected, but yet God chose her to be the deliverer of his people. When it was first talked about whether or not it was going to be included in the Old Testament, we're going back a long ways here. When they were arguing about which books should be in the Old Testament and which ones shouldn't, there was an argument. Why would you include this book? After all, it's about a woman. 
After all, it doesn't even mention the name of God in it anywhere. Why would you want that book in the Bible? But the Holy Spirit knew there was power in this book. He knew that it was transformational. He knew that he was the one that breathed through it, and so it got in there, and it is indeed part of our canon today. This is an extraordinary book, but it ends up bringing up a question. Why Esther? Why not somebody else, right? What was it about Esther that was so special? What caught God's attention, right? Well, you can ask that about any biblical character. Why David? Why anybody else? Now, usually it is not because they're the biggest, the best, the brightest. That's not usually why they're selected. Why? Because God brings that to the table. They're usually selected based on their heart. They're usually selected because they're willing to be obedient and they're willing to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. They are willing to accommodate their lives. They're willing to set aside their priorities and make God's priorities more important. I think that's what God is looking for. I believe that it was indeed Esther's character that set her apart. And we'll talk about why I think so, and I'll try to make that argument today. But here's what's important for you to know. Your character matters. Our character is the essence of why we do what we do. Could be good, could be bad. People have good character. People have bad character. But the essence of why you do what you do matters. And I think we need to lean into it because if you're like me, you want your life to matter, right? I mean, the older you get, you're going to find out that we're not on this planet very long. Like each one of us, kind of have a short stay here. And what we would hate to do is waste it. Do you realize this is the only time you will ever honor God through faith? This is your limited window. Never again in all of eternity will you be able to honor God in faith. Why? Because faith that is finally realized is no longer faith. This is your shot. We don't want to miss this. We don't want to skip this. And we don't want God to skip us. So how do we make our lives available to the Lord for him to use? I'm going to suggest to you that indeed that has to do with character. Can you go ahead and take a look at that fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you? If you have the app open, you can fill that in as well. But here's the fill in the blank. Great character secures a place in God's plans. Great character secures a place in God's plans. You see, God's got a lot of stuff to do. You can either be a part of it or not. I think you want to be a part of it. And your way to be a part of it is to have a soft heart and an obedient spirit. Carrie Newhoff, a Christian leadership guru, said this. Competency gets you in the room. Character keeps you in the room. Here's what that means. What you are capable of doing is your resume that will get you the interview. Whether or not you are a good person or a bad person will determine whether you get the job. Y'all tracking with me? So you may be very gifted and you may have a lot of things that you're able to do, but if God's going to use you, you got to have the character that goes along with it. Haven't we all observed situations where somebody's character was not at the same level of their competency? How did we know that happened? Because of what? A fall from grace. Anybody ever seen a gifted person fall out? Anybody ever seen that? Anybody ever seen somebody that was so talented and they are no longer in ministry because they blew up? You guys have seen that, yeah? Why does that happen? Because our competency, if we're good at something, if we're talented at something, the world will always push us forward. They will always lift us up. They want us to lead. But if you don't have the character to sustain it, you're going to blow up. Just because you're great at something doesn't mean that you have the internal fortitude 
to hang on to that position. You see, the way that I wrote it down was this. Talent, ability, gifting, and anointing get stuff done. But character makes sure it gets done right. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about the book of Esther. Nobody knows who wrote it. We're going back 2,500 years. The story covers a 10-year period. This is something that we don't tend to think about, right? You'll hear me in this series talking about time markers. Because here's how we read the Bible. Well, on Monday, this happened. Then it was Tuesday. Then it was Wednesday. And everything was done by Friday. That is not correct. We're blowing through these books and we're not watching some of the time sequences. The book of Esther covers a decade. We just need to understand there's some growth there. There's some transformation there. There's some growing up to do, right? It's based on the concept that the Jewish people, because of their sin, God had brought judgment on them and they had been kicked out of their land. You remember that? First the north got kicked out, then the south got kicked out. And they were exiled to other countries. When the Persian kingdom came into power, they let them go home. But not everybody went home. This is a story about some of those that didn't go home. They're still in the Persian Empire. Now, there's going to be two key characters in the story. Esther, who we're going to learn a little bit about. She starts out as an unknown. And the king. And I want to talk about the king for a moment because historically there's been some questions as to who this guy is. But understand, he is a character in history. Everybody aware that the Bible does not occur in Narnia? Yes? (laughs) Right? Like it really happened on this real planet in our real history, right? So who is this king? If he was that big of a deal in the Persian kingdom, we should know about him. Well, in fact, We do. So if you are not a history buff, just take a quick nap. We'll be right back with you. All right, here we go. (laughs) The Bible calls him Ahasuerus. That is a much more of a Hebrew name, but his name is Xerxes I. Xerxes I is the son of Darius I and Atasa, the daughter of Cyrus the Great. In other words, you have a mega royal family ruling this. Once again, the Persian Empire at this time was the largest empire the planet had ever seen. It was a big deal at the time. Xerxes means ruler of heroes. He comes on the scene in this story as he's preparing to storm Greece as a revenge for them beating up his father in the Battle of Marathon. In other words, his dad tried to take Greece. It didn't go well. They got embarrassed. So the son is going to do a revenge move, and he's in the process of planning that attack. He ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years, and this is how he was described by historians. You ready? Drunk, embittered, arrogant, unstable, savage, hot-tempered, and lecherous. Boy, I can't wait to marry that dude, yeah? Some of you guys are like, that's my ex-husband. All right, well. He was stabbed to death by his close associate, who then put his son up on the throne in his place. Once again, lots of intrigue, lots of drama, but he did serve for a really long time, 21 years. Who is Esther? That is what we're going to find out about. Would you turn with me to the book of Esther? I'm going to paraphrase Esther chapter 1. We'll begin reading in Esther chapter 2. If you want to turn there in an ESV, it's probably around page 410. 410. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, so if you want to follow along, that kind of helps you where you pick up and go, wait, did, was that really what the Bible said, or is that guy just making that stuff up, right? You can follow along with me. So let me paraphrase, and we'll get into the story. We are in the Persian kingdom. We are in Susa, the capital. It's 483 BC, the same year that Buddha died. Does anybody realize that Buddha was a real dude? By the way, he was super good looking and looked nothing like the big enormous dude on the statue. (laughs) Side note. It was the same year 
that Confucius resigned as the Chinese minister and became a spiritual teacher. This is, for whatever reason, this is a very unique year in history. Greece and Persia are warring. We're three years into Xerxes' reign, and three years before he storms Greece. When he storms Greece, he's going to run up against 300 Spartans. Anybody remember the whole story of the 300? That is about to happen in three years from when our story begins. For six months, he has been telling the nation he is awesome. Now, in today's world, we have to be more PC. We got to lie about how much we are cocky. He did not. He could say, for six months, we're going to talk about I'm awesome every day. So for six months, he kept saying, you know what else is awesome about me? You know what else is awesome about me? Man, I'm almost like deity. I am so good at what I do. Isn't our nation amazing? Now, historians believe he did this because he was kind of amping up this whole attack on Greece, and he wanted everyone really high on their nationalism so they would support him in his endeavor, all right? At the end of this six months, he throws a massive seven-day-long party. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to big parties before. This was a rager. And here's what I mean by this. Whatever party you've been to, Herodotus the historian said, and whether he's exaggerating or not, I do not know, but he marked it out that 15,000 people came to this party. That is a big party. Now, while he is throwing his party for all the dudes, Queen Vashti, his wife, is throwing a party for all the ladies. Now, that is not because they can't party together. That was not a problem in Persia. It was because, I think, the girls said, wow, those guys smell. <laughs> and I think they just went and had their own party over on their side, and everybody's having a great time. Now, this is a little bit weird for us here in modern-day America, but... When you were at a party with a king, he would even tell you when to drink. He was in control of everything. In this party, it was, you guys have at it. I'm out. I don't need to tell you. Drink however much you want, whenever you want. So everybody was really drinking a lot. At the end, he is super lit. <laughs> and he comes up with a plan. I'm going to parade out my trophy wife, Queen Vashti, because she's so good looking. I'm going to parade her out in front of all my dudes. Side note, always a bad idea, right? But he comes up with this plan. Now, I'm not telling you this is accurate, but historians and rabbis throughout history have all commented on the fact that they believe she was asked to present herself in only her crown. Are we all clear on what's going on? Yep. All right, so she's supposed to parade out in front of all the guys' party. She ain't having it. Now, you have to understand, this is the king of the largest world empire. He thinks he's all that. For six months, he's been telling everybody he's the bomb, right? And now, all of a sudden, he can't even tell his wife what to do because she's like, mm -mm, I ain't doing that. I don't know what your problem is, but I'm not coming out there. Now, he really cares about her, so he's like, I don't know what to do about this. So he confers with his buddies. And they're like, dude, if your wife says no to you, that means my wife's going to say no to me. And that means like all the wives are going to rise up and say no to their husbands. We're going to have mass anarchy. We need to shut this down. So they're like, you got to get rid of this woman. And he's like, oh, that's all right. I think that's a good idea. So he's going to kick her out completely. Now, man, this is a little bit crazy, yeah? This is chauvinism and bigotry at its best, yeah? you got a bunch of powerful dudes wanting to use a woman just for her appearance and parade her around for their own benefit. When she pushes back, that rocks the power stream, and they double down on it and lock the door and kick her out. Ah, you know what the irony is? She wins this round. You know the other irony? The entire time, God is going to choose 
a lesser woman to shut him down again and save the Jewish people. You see, whatever the world is thinking about women, God ain't having it. God knows what he's doing, and he knows who he can use. Amen? Amen. We pick up our story in Esther chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, pause, it is three years after fighting Greece. Okay, so we've now zoomed forward in the story three years, all right, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. By the way, he lost, ultimately, he came back super bitter and sad. He's now in that place. After these things, when the anger of the king had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. In other words, he was regretting his rash actions. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. All right, let's pause. This is Persia's Got Talent, right? It's Persia's Got Beauty. It is a massive beauty contest. Now, this is all sorts of tragic, but there's really going to be three major groups of women that are going to be involved in this. And when I talk about young women being involved, we don't know at what age, but they're called young virgins in the ancient world. Ladies were married very early. So if they are still unmarried, we're talking possibly, and the process lasts a year, they might have gone in at 14, came out at 15, gone in at 15, came out at 16, gone in at 16, came out at 17. This is the age group we're talking about, 14, 15, and 16-year-old girls. Now, this whole group is a mixed bag. Some young ladies had been raised in absolute poverty. This is the best day of their lives. They get a chance to shoot for the palace. They are going to have food every day for the rest of their lives. They're going to have an amazing place to live, and they think this is the coolest contest they've ever been involved in. Then there's a group of young ladies who are forced to do this competition because their parents need the money. The parents are going to say, hey, if I'm going to have a connection to the palace, you're going in, whether you like it or not. And then there's a group of young ladies who their parents don't like it, they don't like it, but they are forced to because you don't disobey the king's orders. No matter how you look at it, this is all unhealthy all the way through. Are we tracking on that? All right, let's keep moving forward. By the way, you want to win this contest. And here's why. The difference is queen versus concubine. The minute you're in the, you're in the contest, you will never get married again. You will never have your own life again. Because any young ladies that are a part of the process instantly become a concubine. A concubine means a, I'm going to keep it PG, a partner that you can utilize at will, but they have no life of their own. They can't ever have another husband. So you own them, but a queen is the same thing, but she has some influence and some power. She can have a life. So really, out of all these young ladies, you got to figure out this might be one you want to win because it's going to be the rest of your existence, all right? Pick it up in verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in the capital whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of a Benjaminite, that's what tribe he came from, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away 
with Jeconiah, king of Judah. That are, those are the ones that the king of Babylon had carried away. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah. That is her Hebrew name. It means myrtle, right? That is Esther, which means star. Ladies, you get a choice of name. You either get star or myrtle. Those are your two choices, right? Here we go. She was the daughter of his uncle, which means his much younger cousin. They are cousins. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. All right, let's pause. Where's mom and dad? They're dead. That's a lot of loss. Remember, she's still a young woman. But she had to grow up, both parents gone. That's pretty rough. That's a lot of grief. That's a lot of loss. I would imagine that if you go through that type of loss, it is very tempting to believe that God has forgotten you. Yeah? Wouldn't that, is, aren't we so quick to believe that God has abandoned us when things go terrible? When we have terrible tragedy in our lives, isn't our first reaction to say, God, where are you? You left me all alone. Here's the irony. The whole time she was thinking that, he was moving heaven and earth to position her exactly into the hot spot of the world. Just because you don't feel like God sees you doesn't mean that God doesn't see you. He sees all of you. You see, whether you are a believer or not, he is your creator. If you are a believer, he is your father. And I will tell you this, good dads always know where their kids are at all times. Yeah? Let's keep moving forward. There are some of us that when I talk about becoming all that God wants us to be, when I talk about being used by God, we all kind of wrestle in different ways. Some of us ask the question, can God use me? In other words, if my life is like this, if my life is so messed up, can he even use me? This is my response. Never allow the condition of your life to dictate on whether God can use you. It doesn't matter. God brings it all to the table. Yeah? Here's another one. Some of us ask the question, do I even care? if God wants to use me. And this is the problem with that viewpoint. Too many of us think that God owes us a certain level of blessing before we're going to do something for him. We need a humility check, right? This idea of, well, I don't care if God taps me on the shoulder. What has he done for me lately? He ain't doing anything. I'm not living for him. Hold on. The whole reason you're on this planet is for his glory. It's why you exist it is actually not about you, it's about him. So maybe some of us, our pride is a little bit in the way, right? But then there's some of us in this room, or listening to my voice, that you are really hard on yourself. You're a little self-condemner, right? It's almost like each week you tell Satan, don't bother, I got this one. You understand what I'm saying? Like he doesn't have to do anything. He just kind of takes the day off, and you just beat yourself up over and over and over, right? All right, for all you little self-condemners, you may be asking the question, what could I possibly be useful for? You see, we don't look for God's hand on our life because we don't think we have anything for him to use. Once again, let me remind you, he doesn't need your stuff. He just needs your heart. If you have a heart, you're qualified. Amen? All right. Now, I do want to do one other side note, and it's something that it's a little bit random, but it's important to me because I don't hear it talked about very often. Do you realize that attractiveness is a gift to steward? Now, I'm talking about handsomeness in men. I'm talking about beauty in women. See, most people keep these things polar opposite. Our world has made such a big deal of attractiveness, it has ruined so many people's lives. But at the same time, 
why did Esther get selected? As up to this point, it's only how she looks. Attractiveness is a gift to be stewarded. Imagine this, that there's going to be two people trying to become an anchor on television news. One's really good looking, one is not. Who's going to get the job? The really good looking one. Why? Because people want to look into their cameras and they want to look into their TVs and they want to see beauty. There is a certain type of person that is allowed to be on television. That opens doors. The reason why I'm bringing this up is it is a gift to be stewarded like every other gift. And here's what I mean. I have a gift of words. I can say stuff really convincing. Am I allowed to use that to manipulate people? Am I allowed to use that just for my own benefit? Am I allowed to use that to hurt someone else? The answer is absolutely not. Your attractiveness is not just for you to manipulate with. Your attractiveness is not to make other people do your bidding. It is actually not about you. If you have been gifted in that area, you still use that gift to bless people and for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Good, good, good. Let's look at verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women, let's pause, how many? Historian says 1,400. Okay? Anybody got a problem with the original advice he received to get all the young virgins? Isn't that a bit excessive? How many do you need? Right? That's a little weird. When many young women were gathered in the capital in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of the man who had charge of the women. And the young woman, Esther, pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not yet made known that she's a Jew, her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into, king, into the king, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women." When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Let's pause. After 12 months of beauty treatments, I'm hot. Here's all I'm saying. I'm saying you work on me for a year and I look good to the king. That's all I'm saying, right? Why in the world would you work on this for a year? Well, here's the practical reality. The practical reality is you're gathering in these young ladies from all over. Some of them have never had proper diet or nutrition. They've actually been very poor, and so part of that is just allowing them to get healthy. The other part is some of them have not been able to take care of their skin, not been able to take care of their hair. Remember, this is a beauty contest. So... If they see, wow, you have potential, they work on that person for a year, and then they go into that. Now, you would say, wow, the king sure is waiting a really long time. Trust me, he has plenty going on in his life. This was just another element of his life. Remember, there's 1,400 young ladies probably in this process. But what's really happening here? 
Okay, I'm going to keep it PG for everybody, but the Bible is super clear. I don't know what contest you go in in the evening and come out in the morning. Everybody tracking on this? Okay, they're not taking an SAT, <laughs> right? Now, there are pros and cons again. You have some ladies who were in abject poverty and didn't know if they were going to survive, and this is their opportunity to be cared for. Then there's some that this is the worst day of their entire lives. So you have a mixed bag. But I have to ask the question, isn't God just letting her be exploited more, right? I mean, God allowed this. This is his process. The answer is no. Why? Because he's orchestrating a process to get her into a placement. Here's where we make a mistake. We make a mistake believing that if God has a plan for us, it's going to always be for our benefit. It is not. It is about God's benefit. When we say yes to God, we still go through very difficult circumstances. We kind of go, well, no, 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 I'm trying to say yes to God. It should be awesome. You go back through and look at all the callings of God throughout the Bible, and you tell me if it's always awesome. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that it is. If we want to head forward into the New Testament, all the disciples except one were martyred. That was their calling. You understand what I'm saying? When we say yes to God, it's about him. It's about surrender. It doesn't always work out well for us. But what's so important about this is that God is even using mankind's sin and rebellion for his purposes. They think it's all about them and they can throw this big contest. He's going to insert himself right into the middle of the garbage and make something glorious out of it. That's how brilliant God is. This is how we find peace in the midst of tragedy. If you are a child of God, there is no wasted opportunity. God will either get you out of a bad situation or personally walk you through a bad situation. Those are the only outcomes. Whenever you have tragedy, God inserts meaning into the tragedy as opposed to just leaving it as tragedy. Y'all tracking with me? Because when we hurt, in the back of our minds, we ultimately just want it to have meaning. We don't want to suffer for no reason. I'm not telling you all suffering, it was God's idea and it was a good thing. I'm telling you that once you're in it, God's not going to waste it. And he's going to transform that situation for his glory. Let me give you another side note. And this is something that I really picked up on in this most recent time through the story. Mordecai and Esther, there is no indicator they're particularly religious. Now, I know that that comes as a shock because some of you know the story a little bit later about how she responds in desperation. They're Jews, but they were born Jews. And the reason why we know they weren't particularly religious is everything about this contest is a violation of Jewish law. A young Jewish woman is not allowed to be with a man that is not her husband. And she's not allowed to marry a non-Jew. So the entire process is anti-Jewish conduct. So we already know the fact that she's involved in this, she is not super religious and neither is Mordecai. Now, that is actually very important for us. Here's why. There are some of you that literally don't believe God is going to use you because you're not holy enough or religious enough. You go to church and you look at somebody worshiping really demonstratively and you go, oh, that's who God uses. Some of you will watch someone teach up here and you go, oh, that's who God uses. No, no, he uses you. It doesn't matter whether, do you realize that God even brings holiness to the situation? It's his holiness that matters, not our holiness. If you are looking and saying, you know what, I'm not even a Christian, dude. Like, I came to church, and I'm listening to what you say. This isn't even my thing. Here's my response to you. God's had his hand on you, has been working with you, and has been moving upon you your entire life. He is all over you. You think that just because you're not religious, he doesn't have access to you? That he doesn't want to use you in his plans? Of course he does. 
Now, he would love for you to come a little bit closer. He would love for you to become his child. All I'm telling you is you don't get to mark yourself out because you don't look like the other people in church. Everyone can be used by God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's keep moving forward. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther... Uh, who had been uh, the uncle of Mordecai, excuse me, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was called Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is four years after he dismissed Vashti. This was not an instant. He was busy with war in between there. We're four years later in the story when she becomes the queen. Now, let me bring up a point. Once again, why was Esther chosen? You're like, well, it said that. She was super good looking. Hold on. So were 1,400 other ladies. When you're in a land of, oh, my goodness, Something's got to make you stand out. Everyone knew something was different about this young lady. You know what I think it was? Two things. Her character and the anointing of God. Her character and the anointing of God. And here's how I think it works. I think it's almost identical to Joseph. You guys remember Joseph's story? Joseph, the Bible says, was really good looking. He ends up working in the palace and he's working for this really wealthy guy whose wife takes a notice to him. And she gets really intense about wanting this guy. Why was she so intent on him? I can tell you this, she was around good looking guys all the time. What was different about Joseph? Two things, his character and the anointing of God. There was some little Holy Spirit pixie dust on that dude that made everybody go like, dang, there is something different about that guy. I think the same thing was on Esther. I think she glowed from the inside. I think her inside surpassed her outside, and I think that's what made her marvelous. Because it says everywhere she went, she kept getting everybody's notice. Now, you got to remember, she got the notice of the guy who runs this stuff. He is watching a parade of young, beautiful women go past him every day. He is not moved. By the way, he's a eunuch. He isn't even interested. What I'm telling you is he's not wowed by beauty, and he goes, something's different about that lady right there. That is the anointing of God, and that's the character of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that her character remains consistent regardless of her situation? Some of it was good, some of it was bad. She was still godly. Godly character is the only thing we get to bring to the table, right? So let me just paraphrase what happens for the rest of chapter two. Two of the guys involved in the whole harem situation end up getting angry at the king. They do an assassination plot. Hey, uh, Mordecai finds out about it, tells Esther, says, you've got to tell the king. She's like, all right. She tells the king it's exposed, king is safe, right? Once again, they work for a pagan organization, they did their job, cool. All right, that's going to come up later in the story, but here's what I want to highlight. Notice her level of obedience. Hey, the king's eunuch says, do this. She did that. Mordecai said, don't tell him you're a Jew. She didn't. You need to go tell the king that there's a plot. She did. She was obedient and submissive all the way through because in her mind, it was not about her. Now, there's something marvelous about that. Here's what I mean. 
her horizontal relationships and obedience seem to be an indicator of her vertical relationship with God. In other words, she was not tripping off insecurity, so she was able to do whatever was necessary in obedience because truly she only had two authorities, her practical dad, Mordecai, and her heavenly father. And she had no problem being obedient to either one. The reason why I point this out is there's a lot of people I know that are really into God, but their relationships horizontally are a mess. And I'm like, hold on. This vertical relationship should impact your relationships with human beings. You don't get to just say, I love God, but I'm just a jerk to everybody. Does that make sense? You can't say, I love God, but I spend my whole life in rebellion. They affect one another. Her character represented that she had some connection with God that was deep. That's all we know. You know what Christians do? And once again, we're not all going to be queen, right? We got every day. What are we going to do every day? Here's what the Bible says are our pixie dust indicators. They're called fruit of the Spirit. You guys know these? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You know why those are indicators? Because those are the Holy Spirit's nature. And if He lives in you and you're submitted to Him, it should bleed out your pores. If you're struggling in any of those areas... Something needs to be made right vertically. The answer is not trying harder. The answer is becoming closer. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that pours out through us. Yeah? All right, let's land this plane. Are we prepared for God to use us? Many, many years ago, there was a Bible study called Experiencing God. Anybody go through the Experiencing God series? All right, a few of you, yeah. It was written by Henry Blackaby. The whole premise of the study was this. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. You cannot continue doing things your way and accomplish God's purposes in His ways. Once you've adjusted your life to God, to His purposes, to His ways... You are prepared to obey him. So here's my question. What needs to adjust in us that we might be aligned to be used by God? That's the question. You see, the Christian life is a combination of God inserting us into situations and how we choose to partner with him, right? Sovereignty, free will, they go together. Some stuff happens to us, some stuff we need to make happen, but what are you doing with your part? God's going to run his part. What are you doing with your part? Pastor Paul Tomey gave me this great quote. He said this, there are three kinds of people in this world. Those who watch things happen, those who make things happen, and those who have no idea what just happened. Amen. Amen. Y'all, we are not left alone on this planet. Jesus Christ came and gave us an example on how to live and then gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to constantly advance us into the image of the Son. Do you realize we are not merely the sum total of our mistakes? We are advancing sometimes despite us. That you need to look back and realize God is transforming you. He's changing you. You should be encouraged today. You should know God wants to use you right here, right now. Are you done advancing? No. But God can still use you in the process. I want everyone walking out of here looking for God's tap on your shoulder, looking for God's whisper in your ear, saying, I know that God can use me right here, right now. Lord, what do you want me to do? How must I align to be used for your glory today? Amen? So here's what we're going to do. If you are not a Christian, you got to seize this moment. 
because right now everything makes sense to you and you've got to seize this moment because it may not always. If you are a Christian, you've got to seize this moment. There is something that God is personally revealing to you. You're going to think that I said it. I bet you anything, I didn't. So many of you come back to me and say, you know, there's one thing I'll never forget of what you said, and then you share it with me, and I'm like, I can tell you I never said that. Always. Most of the time, I just kind of just go with it. I'm like, hmm, I do sound brilliant. <laughs> Don't remember ever saying that, but all right, I'll take credit. God is downloading these personal date notes to every single one of you right now. You got to seize that moment. Because he's whispering, my child, there's more. Lean into that more, whatever that is today. We're going to pray, yeah? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right here in your presence, we want to say yes to your more. We want to say yes to alignment. We want to say no to self and yes to you. God, some of us right now have never made a commitment to you. We didn't even know that you wanted a relationship with us. But we know that right now. Lord, we look at our lives and we know what we've made. It's not awesome. Some of us did terrible stuff. Some of us were really good people. The problem is we just only live for us. God, right now we admit to you we need saving. We need rescuing. Jesus, you came down and died on that cross so you would trade your life for us. You would give us your purity, your forgiveness, your holiness. We need that today. So right now in our hearts, Lord, we are crying out to you and saying, save us, transform us, make us new. Let us be your kids today. And God, those of us that do know you as Father, we are asking, Lord, remake us. Show us what we can change. Show us how we can adjust. Whisper possibility into our minds. Adjust our imagination that we might begin to dream of something greater. Lord, we pray that you would speak loudly and that we could clear up the conduit of our ears that we might be able to do everything you tell us to do with a yes, sir. Lord, we want to bring you glory. That's why we're here. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.